Well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, You are the God of truth, and we have just come from Your altar where You've led us by Your light and Your truth to come into Your holy presence for public worship, the singing of Your praises, the conscionable hearing of Your word, and uh, what a great and blessed fellowship that we have with all of our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. We pray that you would bless this class, that you would lead us into all truth by your Holy Spirit, that we would have his anointing to distinguish truth from error, righteousness from unrighteousness, orthodoxy from heterodoxy. Please guide us and be merciful to us, forgiving all of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. We are now resuming our lecture series on the federal vision after a sizable layoff based upon the presbytery schedule and the many duties that I've had as clerk, but we're back in business here. And you may recall our last lecture, we discussed Doug Wilson's perspective on infant baptism. And so moving now to the next logical topic, we consider Doug Wilson on paedo-communion. And this, Lord willing, will be coming in two installments. This is part one of two. In this lecture, we're going to be giving a general refutation of paedo-communion. We're going to be considering why we do not allow infants and young children to come to the Lord's table until they've reached an age of self-examination and a mature profession of faith. In the second lecture, we are hoping to consider more specifically Doug Wilson's own perspective on this topic. So we're going to look at one particular quote from Wilson here to set the stage. Then we're just going to seek to refute the position of Pado communion from the scriptures. And then next time, we're hoping to consider some more specific aspects of Doug Wilson on this particular topic. So you can see on your lecture outline, your handout, that our first point is that Doug Wilson advocates the unbiblical and contra-confessional practice of paedo-communion. We're familiar with the term paedo-baptism. This is what would separate us from credo-baptists or baptists, where they would only baptize someone on a mature profession of faith, whereas we would baptize infants. We would baptize the seed of professing believers. Uh, but when it comes to the Lord's Supper, we would restrict that sacrament to those who have made a mature profession of faith. But there are those, particularly throughout history in the Eastern Orthodox Church, but also more recently in the federal vision camp and people like Doug Wilson and many of the churches in the Confederation of Reformed Evangelical Churches, which is now the communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches. Anyway, they changed their name. But the point is they would allow infant communion or they would allow young child communion in the sense of before a child comes to a mature and credible profession of faith. Now, this is an important topic because we're dealing with the important subject of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which is a big deal. In Corinth, when the administration of the sacrament ran afoul, people died. So it's very serious. And Doug Wilson advocates the unbiblical and contra-confessional practice of paedo-communion. What we mean by unbiblical is that we're going to demonstrate that the Bible restricts participation in the Lord's Supper to those who make a mature, credible profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, paedo-communion is unbiblical. We're saying it's contra-confessional in the sense that our doctrinal standards, the Westminster standards, also restrict participation in the sacrament to those who make a mature, credible profession of faith in Christ. So, here's the Christ Church Constitution. This is Doug Wilson's church in Moscow, Idaho. Quote, Any baptized child may partake of the Lord's table, 
provided the parents instruct the child at each observation of the supper, and the child can heed the instruction. End quote. We want to be very clear here. Doug Wilson's church does not say that infants partake of the Lord's Supper because they are covenant children and because they are members of the church. Notice that. In principle, Doug Wilson's position, or should I say in practice, Doug Wilson's position at his church, is to fence the table. So this is very important because Doug Wilson, as we'll see in our next lecture, Lord willing, uses an argument to say that all covenant members should partake of communion, all baptized members should partake of communion, but his own church does not practice that. They do not allow all baptized members to partake of communion. They allow baptized children to partake of the Lord's table under certain criteria and qualifications, certain conditions, provided the parents instruct the child at each observation of the supper and provided that the child can heed the instruction. So this means that there, it's only a subset of the covenant children that are permitted to partake. This is very important because he's going to criticize the confessional reformed church for fencing the table from covenant members and supposedly not doing justice to the fact that our baptized infants are part of the body of Christ, but his own church constitution forbids baptized children from partaking of communion unless they're at a point where they can heed that instruction and unless the, the parents instruct the child. Very important. Now, he's going to use an argument. Again, we'll get to it next time, but just want to make this point from uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Now, he's going to emphasize verse 17. And if you recall, when I preached on this, probably too far in the past for us to recall, but this translation that we have in, in the New King James, I think similar issues in the King James, is not the best. It sounds like it's saying we are the one bread and the one body. But in the Greek, I think the English Standard Version captures the parallel thought here the best, something to the effect of, uh, in the same way that there's one loaf of bread, we are one body. And so it's in the same way. It's not saying that the body of Christ is the loaf of bread. Now, at a certain level, maybe we can say that it just common sense would say that's the imagery, that the loaf represents the body. But it is important to realize that if you're really trying to hinge your entire administration of the sacrament on that, be careful. It's not exactly equating the one bread with the one body. But let's just say it is. Let's just say that Paul is declaring that the one loaf of bread is the one body by way of symbolic representation. Doug Wilson, in his writings, tries to say, well, if you're part of the one bread, one body, you should have access to partake of the one bread, one body. And as much of what Wilson says, it makes sense. The first time you hear it, you say, oh, wow, that makes perfect sense. If you're part of the one bread, then you should be able to partake of the one bread. And yet, there are a lot of problems with that based on other passages, but here's my point. Doug Wilson's very own church has a policy that says that not all members of the one bread, one body are able to partake. There are restrictions and conditions even in his Pado communion congregation such that the requirement for communion is not merely that you're a baptized member of the body, but it requires your parents to do something and it requires the child to, be, to have the capacity to heed instruction from the parents. Now listen to a quote from Doug Wilson. We looked at this in a previous lecture, but let's return to it now in terms of this debate over pedo communion. Quote, 
Just a short time ago, another grandchild came to his first observation of the Lord's Supper. Now, let me just stop and say, they have weekly communion in Doug Wilson's church. So, shouldn't it be the case that his child's first communion would be the same service in which the child was baptized or soon thereafter? Now, you, maybe you could get into some issues of whether the child can, can uh, consume a little piece of uh, bread or, or, or whatever. But, but the issue is, he's referring here to his grandchild's first observation of the Lord's Supper. Now, that type of language is typically is used in churches that fence the table, right? Even in the Catholic Church, you have first communion when the child has gone through catechism and made a profession. In confessional Reformed churches, a child has their first communion when they've made that mature, credible profession of faith. Interestingly, though Wilson in, in principle says one bread, one body, every baptized child should partake, now they have this distinction. Now there's a first communion, continuing the quote. I know this is troublesome to some readers, but please bear with me for a moment. He, meaning the grandchild, is a year and a half old, so 18 months, and doesn't really talk yet. Well, that reminds us of Isaiah chapter 8, right? He's not old enough to know how to say, my father, my mother, right? The Bible has categories for this, which we're going to look at in a moment. He is a year and a half old and doesn't really talk yet, but he worships with his family throughout our worship service, and he has a basic sign language catechism down. Where is Jesus? He pats his head. Where is God? He points to heaven. Are you baptized? He pats his head. At the conclusion, sorry, he pats his heart for the question, where is Jesus? My mistake. At the conclusion of our worship service, we all sing the Gloria Patri with hands upraised, which he used to do also. But as he began to notice the communion tray going by and he didn't get any, it began to distress him. Let's stop there. So the kid doesn't talk. Apparently Doug Wilson's reading his mind. The kid's distressed. You know, it couldn't have been a bad sermon, right? It has to be that he, he didn't get a chance to partake of communion. Um, but again, you know, he's the, the baby whisperer here. Grandpa knows what's going on in the mind of his uh, 18-month-old grandchild here. Anyway, continuing the quote, about a month before he came to the table, he stopped raising his hands in the Gloria Patri and just watched. He was starting to learn how to observe as a detached outsider. When it was decided he should come to the table, he was carefully instructed in the meaning of the supper as he held the bread. When he partook, together with his family, one of the first things he did was pat the heads of everyone around him, father, uh, mother, father, grandmother. We are all baptized, he said, discerning the body. Now, he didn't actually say that, right? This is Doug Wilson's, it sounds like he's writing a storybook or something, like a Curious George book, the way he talks here. But I guess he's, he's emoting this. He's, he's giving these vibes that through this sign language catechism that he thinks, hey, we're all baptized. By the way, the child's baptism wasn't enough to bring him to the table, right? It had to be the sign language catechism vibes. Anyway, we are all baptized, he said, discerning the body. At the Gloria Patri, his hands shot up in the air, glory to God indeed, so we believe the terms of the covenant and we believe that God has promised us our children. We talk like we believe it because we do, end quote. So this really introduces us to the world of Doug Wilson with respect to Pado communion. Now, this is a contra-confessional teaching, larger catechism, uh, 177 says this, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper differ in that baptism is to be administered but once with water, to be a sign and seal of our regeneration and ingrafting into Christ, and that even to infants, whereas the Lord's Supper is to be administered often in the elements of bread and wine to represent and exhibit Christ as spiritual nourishment to the soul and to confirm our continuance and growth in him, and that only to such as are of years and ability to examine themselves. Notice, 
confessional position here, and that only to such as are of years and ability to examine themselves. And of course, the catechism here is referring back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, with respect to those who are communing unworthily. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So the Lord's Supper requires self-examination. Just like the Passover, you had to get the leaven out of your house, which, of course, was an outward action that presupposed a spiritual inward action of self-examination and repentance. And you, you see the same thing throughout the Old Testament with the ceremonial washings of the priest or the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. There are these outward things happening, but the people of God, the believing people of God, were by faith, spiritually, as they're washing their bodies, they're confessing sin and cleansing their conscience and looking to the sacrifice of Christ pictured in that sacrificial altar. So here you have children required to reach years and ability to examine themselves. Now let's, let's pause here for a moment to try to understand our own position. Our own position, summarized here in the Catechism, is that it's necessary for those who come to the Lord's table to be able to examine themselves. So uh, that requires ordinarily cer a certain number of years. Uh, we'll get into that with the example of the Lord Jesus Christ later at age 12. But there needs to be, in terms of the ordinary course of human development uh, of the mind and the heart of man, there needs to be that development to the point where a child has the maturity that usually comes with years and the ability to examine themselves. Now, this is not mandating a particular age. Some denominations mandate a particular age. Certainly the Old Testament Jews mandated at age 12 with the bar mitzvah. So we're not speaking for or against mandating a specific age. You could see pros and cons of any system that you would come up with. But it is saying that the determining factor of the proper age is the ability to examine oneself. So that means, first of all, the child needs to understand the vows or promises of communicant membership. They have to understand the new covenant that they're renewing through the Lord Jesus. They need to understand the vows and, and uh, covenant of communicant membership, understand what each of these things mean, understand the corresponding duties that they have and in terms of vow five, they need to be consistently doing those things, right, before they come to the table. Uh, our children should not be coming to the table before they've had, and what I say here is not the law of the Medes and Persians, but I'm, I'm trying to express biblical principles. I would say at least a year of faithful daily Bible reading and daily prayer. In terms of conscionable hearing of the Word, coming to worship services and worshiping God with reverence and godly fear, singing God's praise. Our children should come to the Lord's table once they have understood the basic truths of Christian doctrine as summarized in the Shorter Catechism. It would be great if they've memorized the whole thing. If they grow up throughout their whole life in the church, that's uh, definitely something that is attainable. They need to, underst they need to understand self-examination and I would, you know, in the case of our two older boys, again, just, just, just one example, the Lord works in many ways, but um, our two older boys engaged in communion preparation and self-examination for at least a year before they came to the table. So they, they saw that in the family, we were emphasizing this and taking time apart individually to come up with lists of sins to repent of and to confess. They participated in the annual fast day in January and it became part of their regular rhythm and routine to engage in communion preparation even when they were still sitting in the pew. And so when that had been taking place for a period of time, and they're already doing it, right, now we, now we can establish, yes, they're at an age to profess their faith, to examine themselves, to come to the Lord's table, because they're already reading their Bible, they're already praying every day, they're already coming to church, and seeking to keep the Sabbath, and, and they're you know, learning their catechism, and they're already 
examining themselves. So that's a good way to do it. You, you sort of have a runway period before there's a liftoff. And we don't have a specific age where that needs to happen. So it's, it's vital for us that we make sure that runway is taking place. And we can look at our covenant of baptism for instructional points for parents on the kind of things we want to teach our children, the value of church membership, and the, you know, the reality of sin and of Christ and his salvation, the meaning of the sacraments. So, but there, there's that runway where they're already doing it and that's confirmed consistently and then they lift off. Uh, similar to how many churches handle church membership, right? Uh, and and the, the longer I'm in pastoral ministry, sometimes I think maybe this, this is the, the best way where people are attending for a while and on the runway, and then they join, right? When there's a sense of stability and consistency. In any event, the ability to examine themselves in terms of their vows and in terms of communion, and, and that's the position of our church, of our denomination, and of the Westminster Standards. Now, Ian Murray, writing in the 1980s to Francis Nigel Lee, said this, quote, the admission of all church children to the Lord's table is the death of experimental religion. The admission of all church children to the Lord's table is the death of experimental religion. And I got that quote from a sermon by Reverend Gavin Beers of the um, Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, Burlington, North Carolina, and he followed that quote up by saying this, uh, Murray's right. It may build churches that are conservative. This is Pado communion. It may build churches that are conservative with a strong view on family that love liturgy and beauty and have a zeal for cultural transformation. It might look good, but brethren, it will produce churches that are full of unconverted people who think they are converted, end quote. And I've given you a link to that sermon, Age of Admission to the Lord's Table, and I would heartily commend that. I think it's one of the most helpful explanations that I've heard on the principles here. Their denomination in the Free Church of Scotland Continuing, I believe, does say 16 is the age, so that I wouldn't fully endorse that as the absolute age, but I'm just saying overall the principles there are extremely helpful. So Doug Wilson advocates a position that is contrary to the Westminster Standards and is very dangerous to the spirituality of the church because it removes that urgency to teach our children to examine themselves, to come to personal assurance, and to have personal repentance and faith on a regular, rhythmic, sacramental basis. This is very important, the Lord Jesus Christ even when in, his, uh, in his, the days of his flesh, was involved in the rhythm of the life of the church. They would go to the three feasts every year. You know, from age 12 on, he communed in that way, but not before. So, second major point, Pado communion ignores the distinctiveness of the Lord's Supper in relation to baptism. Pado communion ignores the distinctiveness of the Lord's Supper in relation to baptism. And we've already seen in the larger catechism there that the sacraments of baptism, though they have much in common, you can look at question 176, but in 177, they have some things that are different. Baptism is administered once for your entire life. The Lord's Supper is administered often, that is multiple times every year of your life. And the imagery is slightly different, and those to whom it is administered, uh, there are just these differences. Now, here are some distinct elements of the Lord's Supper, or distinct aspects of the Lord's Supper, which help us to distinguish it from baptism. The first thing on your list there is that the Lord's Supper is active. It's active. Whenever you see the command with respect to baptism in the New Testament, it's always in the passive. It's always in the passive voice. Be baptized. Be baptized. But with respect to the command 
regarding the Lord's Supper, it's active. Take, eat, remember, declare, do this, examine, judge. There's this imperative, this active imperative involved in the Lord's Supper. It's not just something that's done to you, but it's something you're actively involved in. And you can see right away, theologically, why that is the case, because in our regeneration, we are entirely passive. When we were brought forth out of darkness into light, we did not participate in that process. God raised us from the dead spiritually, and we were entirely passive. And so the sacrament that's a sign and seal of our regeneration and ingrafting into Christ, which is given even to infants, those who above all of us are passive in many respects, can't do hardly anything for themselves. You see the imagery there of regeneration. Whereas the sacrament that deals with spiritual nourishment for the soul and confirming our continuance and growth in Christ, in other words, the ongoing Christian life in which we are active, sanctification is entirely of God, but it enables our active participation in cleansing ourselves, purifying ourselves, as the Scriptures repeatedly tell us. So the Lord's Supper is something that is active. Take, eat, remember, declare, do this, examine, judge, rather than just be baptized. Now, if you're baptized as a professing believer, as an adult, it's not to say that, that you aren't spiritually active when you profess your faith and, and these kinds of things. But the baptism itself is something that is done to you. You don't grab hold of the water and sprinkle yourself or something like that. Maybe if you're a semi-Pelagian, you, you, you know. But be baptized. It's passive. It's also the Lord's Supper is personal. It's active and it is personal. And what I mean by that is with respect to baptism, you have in the New Testament, throughout the book of Acts and the epistles, you have oikobaptism, household baptism, where one of the parents professes faith in Christ, like Lydia, and then her house, her family, her oikos is baptized. So baptism extends not only to us, but also to our children. But never in the New Testament do you see oikocommunion. Doug Wilson speaks of this 18-month-old that is communing with his family, which right off the bat, it raises some issues there. Communion is in the body of Christ. You may be sitting next to a family member. Obviously, in that church, they probably take communion in the pews. They're not coming forward. But the, the issue is you may be taking it surrounded by people that are your family members. Maybe in the upper room, Peter and Andrew were sitting next to each other. We don't know. But you're not communing with your family. There's a hyper-patriarchalism that you find in Doug Wilson that we'll get to at some point. But this is a problem. Communing with your family? No, there's no oikocommunion in the New Testament. Paul doesn't say in 1 Corinthians 11, examine your birth certificate. He says, examine yourself. Examine your heart. Examine your life. So, there's no oikocommunion. So a lot of the same arguments you could use for infant baptism, they dry up when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Thirdly, it's not only active and personal in that sense, but also consensual or covenantal, we could say. 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord Jesus says that we're to take this cup which is the new covenant. So the cup is an emblem of the covenant of God. We're taking this emblem of the covenant. You think of the Ark of the Covenant. You think of all the tangible representations in the Old Testament of God's covenant. When you take the cup, you are taking the covenant. You're taking an oath. You're renewing that covenant and your adherence to that covenant with the Lord through Jesus Christ. You're taking the covenant. You're taking Christ to be your head and husband. There's a marital, covenantal, consensual element here. It's an oath. It's a covenant. And the Lord Jesus draws our attention to this when he says, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. The blood of the covenant, he says. And he's drawing our attention back to Exodus 24, 
where Moses sprinkles the people with the blood of the covenant. Exodus 24, verse 3, So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. So Jesus, when he's saying you're taking the cup and you're uh, renewing covenant, he's drawing their attention back to this passage, which we'll see in a moment, talks about the blood of the covenant. And he's drawing us back to this covenant renewal where God's people gather together and they commit collectively to do what God says. That's consensual, covenantal. Verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And it wasn't a bunch of 18-month-olds patting their heads, doing catechismal sign language, if that's a word. These are people that hear and understand God's will and commit and promise and give their consent that they will do it. Then verse 9, Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. So here you have a covenant meal, And it's important to realize not every sacrament, not every sacramental feast or meal in the Scriptures is for every member of the covenant. In this case, Jesus is drawing His disciples' attention back to this passage with the blood of the covenant. And in this case, the meal, the covenantal covenantal meal, was eaten not by everyone, not by the children, but by Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders of the priests. So this involves a consensual covenant transaction, an oath and a vow. In some ways, the imagery of a wedding feast and a marriage is involved. And Isaiah 62, verse 4 and 5, tells us that the people of God shall be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah, for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. That's the collective marriage between the Lord and His church. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. Okay, now that's a mixed metaphor. I hope we understand that. But what that's saying is that the children of God's people will come to years of maturity and give their consent and enter into this covenantal bond explicitly and consensually And this is what we desire when we baptize our children, that they eventually will take these marriage vows for themselves and marry Christ through membership in His church or marry the church. I mean, there's so many different uh, covenantal images here. And it says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So our sons will then be brought into that explicit consensual marriage covenant with the Lord. Psalm 50, verse 5. The Lord speaks to those who had made a covenant with Him by sacrifice. And then later in the psalm, verses 14 through 17, He rebukes them and threatens them with judgment because they took His covenant upon their lips and then cast it behind their backs. In other words, there's an element here where he's confronting those who explicitly took God's covenant upon their lips and then partook of the covenantal feast of the peace offering and then having taken the covenant on their lips through a conscious, consensual covenant, they cast it behind their backs. So again, it assumes that those partaking there were doing so with knowledge and understanding. This is made even more clear in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, when Israel renews covenant and enters into a national covenant and an ecclesiastical covenant to be faithful to the Lord. Nehemiah 10, 28, after listing all the people who signed the covenant, it says, now the rest of the people, 
the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and statutes. And you can see a number of those things are listed there. But notice, there's a nuance here. They're all members of the covenant, even their sons and daughters, but it qualifies which sons and daughters entered into the curse and the oath to walk in God's law. It was everyone who had knowledge and understanding. They were not going to allow their young children who didn't have knowledge and understanding to take this vow, this oath of allegiance that they didn't understand at all, and so add to their accountability in the sight of God to the point of bringing a curse on themselves, because they would have, I believe, understood that as child abuse. To put your child in a situation where they're, I mean, imagine if you you had a 10-year-old taking marriage vows, right? We all understand children without knowledge and understanding and maturity are not in a position to make binding commitments of this nature and are not in a position to enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. And that's the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11 says that when we enter into this oath and we do it unworthily, it becomes a curse and people die. People die. People get sick. People get chastened. It's a curse if it's not done worthily. So they limited that to those who have knowledge and understanding, a mature, credible profession of faith and obedience. And that's how we treat our covenant of communicant membership. That's biblical. Understanding is required to enter into a curse. Now, fourth point here, Pado communion ignores the distinctiveness of the Lord's Supper in relation to baptism with respect to the subjective experimental or experiential element. The Lord's Supper is distinctively subjective and experimental. It is called in 1 Corinthians 10, 15 through 22, the communion or fellowship or partnership. That word koinonia is used in different ways in the New Testament. But the communion, the fellowship of the Lord's body and blood. When we partake of the bread and of the cup, we are entering into a conscious communion and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, His body and His blood. And it's very important that we don't lose sight of that. This is experimental. This is subjective. This is something we're supposed to feel. The Apostle Paul fleshes this out even to um, verse 20, rather... Uh, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? So there is a, a marital, oath-bound element to the Lord's Supper. We are to enter into this in conscious commitment and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and with his people. And an infant is not able to do that. We need to enter into it as well with a conscious awareness of our sins, specific sins that we need to repent of, and of the Lord's judgment. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, verse 31, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. In other words, Hebrews 12, in order to bring forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness and be chastened properly and and, uh, get the point, we need to be able to be exercised concerning the Lord's discipline. What is the sin that He's disciplining me for? How did He discipline me? How do I need to repent? working through these things in connection with preparation for the Lord's Supper and with reflection on the Lord's Supper that has just occurred 
Can an infant do that? Does the Lord chasten infants in that way? He makes them sick, and then they discern, like Doug Wilson's grandchild, I guess, but they discern, oh, it's because of this and because of that, and I need to repent. An infant is not able to do that. And yet this is what is involved in communion. It's being consciously aware not only of fellowship with the Lord, but of the Lord's chastening hand so that we can be instructed by it, not just by way of our parents, but we can directly respond to God's discipline in our lives. And that means we need to be at a capacity where we can discern the Lord's fatherly discipline in our lives. A child who is not at a point where they're doing that is not at a point to commune at the Lord's table by definition, according to this verse. Now, paedo-communion misrepresents the biblical characterization of early childhood development. Ordinary childhood development in the Scriptures, and in some sense, we don't even need to look at Bible verses, it's just plain common sense, but listen to the way the Bible presents our infant children and our young children. Deuteronomy 1, verse 39, listen to this. Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, right? They don't want to enter Canaan because they think their kids are going to be victimized. Lame excuse. But anyway, those children, those little ones and children who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it and they shall possess it. So the Bible is not saying that our children are subhuman at an early age, but it is saying that their minds, their mental and spiritual development, even if we assume that they're regenerate from the womb, as Doug Wilson seems to assume for many of these, but even if they were regenerate, their minds are not at a capacity even to have knowledge or discernment of good and evil at that age. And people say, well, I don't like that. Well, that's what the Bible says. In fact, this was true not only of the Israelites in the days of Moses, it was true of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the eternal Son of God took on humanity, His infant and childhood humanity had to grow and develop in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Uh, We wouldn't even say Jesus was regenerate. We would say that that He, I mean, He was sinless. He was perfect. He was unfallen. But even in that unfallen state, listen to what Isaiah chapter 7 verse 15 says of Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child, capital C, shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Now Jesus in his divine nature, of course, has infinite knowledge and certainly had infinite knowledge during the the days of his flesh. But in his human nature, he developed ordinarily. So that there was a point in his childhood where in his human mind, in his humanity, the text says there was a point before he knew to refuse the evil and choose the good. What does that mean? It means that there was a point before he knew to refuse the evil and choose the good. Let's stick with the language of Scripture. You see that in Luke chapter 2, where we see the human development of the Lord Jesus Christ according to that human nature, Luke 2, verse 40. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So there was an organic development even of the perfect humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, such that there was a point before he had that type of knowledge and discernment that would have been necessary to partake in a believing manner of the sacramental feasts of the Old Testament, which is why he didn't commune till age 12. Luke 2, verses 41 and 42. Uh, which again, we'll we'll probably have to pivot into our lesson next time, but we will look at that in greater detail. Understand that ordinary human development is something that the Bible is very clear about in terms of children lacking discernment in earlier years. 1 Corinthians 13.11 assumes this when Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. 
but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Ephesians 4, 13 through 15 assumes the, the teaching we've seen on early childhood development when it says in Ephesians 4.13, it assumes this. It says, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, that is a mature, full-grown man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So children are easily influenced by false teaching and easily influenced in general. They don't, uh, until they come to that maturity of discernment. And that, that's assumed in the whole imagery that's employed there by the Apostle Paul. Now, we'll conclude here just by finishing up point three on your outline and we'll look at some highly misinterpreted and misapplied passages by advocates of pedo communion. So one of the ones that they go to, Psalm 8, verse 2, which says, Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. So it's telling us, uh, even as we know in the life of our Lord, he went to the temple and many of the young children are literally singing his praises out of the book of Psalms. Psalms that apply directly to Christ. They're singing these things, praising the son of David. And Jesus quotes this to the Pharisees. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength to silence your foes. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't refer to communion. It doesn't refer to taking oaths and vows before the Lord. It doesn't refer to any of those things, nor was any of that happening at the temple when Jesus quoted this verse. It's speaking of our children singing God's praise, our covenant children joining in an aspect of the worship service that is helpful to prepare them to eventually come to the Lord's table, right? So God has given us some ordinances that our covenant children can actively participate and they graduate from one grade to the next till they reach that mature profession of faith. Singing the Psalms is one of those things and it demonstrates God's mighty power uh, that not by might nor by our power, but by His Spirit and, and even by the weakest among us, God declares His own strength. And certainly teaching our children the Psalms is a great way to strengthen them and to strengthen the witness of the church, but it's not dealing with participation in the sacramental feasts. Another verse would be Psalm 22, verse 9 and 10. Obviously here, this is Christ on the cross speaking, so there's something unique about it. It says, but you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Now, we would obviously affirm everything that's stated there and see it as in no sense contradicting credo communion or in no sense promoting pedo communion because what the lord is saying here is that is that his heavenly father took him out of the womb providentially he was born and it says you made me trust while on my mother's breast now this is speaking of the reliance of a child upon its mother. That is what this is referring to. And if you look at the Hebrew lexicon as well, this is not the kind of verse where you'd want to say, well, there's this 15-day-old infant nursing at his mother's breast, and that's saving faith. That is just not what the verse is saying. That's not the context. The context is that the child is dependent, hoping and trusting and relying upon God by way of his mother's breast to feed him. So there's an utter reliance and dependence here, but not saving faith. That's not the emphasis of the text, nor, is it, uh, nor can it be read that way in light of Isaiah 7, that even Christ in his infancy developed in the ordinary way. And uh, by the way, children in the ancient world were at their mother's breast a lot longer than they are today. So, you know, I remember my first 
uh, profession of faith, not a mature profession, but my first sense of trusting the Lord and asking forgiveness for my sins was at age three. In that culture, I would have still been at my mother's breast nursing in, in many of these households. So understand the, the context as well. It's, it doesn't support pedo communion. You see something similar in Psalm 75, five and, sorry, 71, 5 and 6. You are my hope, O Lord. You are my trust from my youth. I've been upheld by you from birth. Uh, none of this suggests that we can receive a credible profession of mature saving faith from an infant at the mother's breast. It's just taken out of context. And even with respect to John the Baptist, who had the Holy Spirit upon him from the womb, Luke 1 and verse 15, it's the last verse I'm going to cite before we conclude here. Luke 1 verse 15 says of John, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, we've seen already that Christ who was unfallen, who was perfectly generate, if you will, in and of himself through the virgin birth, that he underwent the organic, ordinary human process of learning where there was a time before he could discern good and evil in that conscious sense of moral understanding. And, and so all the more, we would say John the Baptist, who uh, was very likely regenerate from the womb in the same way he had to develop, and no doubt he communed at age 12, in the same way that the Lord Jesus Christ communed in the Passover at that time. Now, that leaves some things still hanging. Next time we'll consider uh, Pado communion and its failure to appreciate the God-ordained pattern of participation in the sacramental feasts of the Old Testament. So we'll look at the sacramental feasts in general, we'll look at the triannual feasts, we'll look at the Passover in particular, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the example of Christ. And then we'll reflect on two unhealthy tendencies of the Pado communion position. All right, let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks that you instruct us concerning every good work that we need to be equipped to perform. We pray that you would instruct us here concerning ourselves, concerning our children, concerning your holy sacrament, we pray that you would enable us to see through the clever fables of Pado communion which would deceive us into trampling underfoot the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys rather than fencing and guarding and treating with utter reverence the Lord's table. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.